When the AstraZeneca vaccine first started to be rolled out, it was hailed by the government as a success for a global Britain. Matt Hancock, the health secretary, saw in that episode a kind of example of how Britain could speed up regulation, make itself less bureaucratic and become a worldwide home for biotech and innovation. So is life sciences going to be the next big thing for Britain? And what, if anything, should the government be trying to do to help? It recently published a life science vision, that was the official narrative, but how much vision was there? I'm Fraser Nelson, editor of The Spectator, and in this special podcast I'll be talking to Anthony Brown, who's a long-time Spectator contributor, a Tory MP for South Cambridgeshire, a place which, by the way, now boasts the title of the European capital of life sciences. I'll be talking to Zoe Martin, who is a policy manager at Cancer Research, a charity that raises billions for um, pharmaceutical research and spends about a third of a billion pounds a year on cancer research alone. And Samina Saeed, who's UK Chief Scientific Officer at Novartis, which is kindly sponsoring this podcast. So, to start with, Anthony, can you perhaps help us with the terminology? I mean, 15 years ago, you spoke about pharmaceuticals, then we spoke about biotech. Now we're speaking about life science. What does it mean? Are these basically different words for the same thing? So the science is developing very, very rapidly, and we're actually on the verge of a major revolution, which is largely based around genomics, but also the application of artificial intelligence. So we we now can decode the human genome. I've got the Wellcome Sanger Institute in South Cambridgeshire. They've decoded the genome of 500,000 people. They've put that uh, out in the public domain. We've got all the records from the NHS anonymized. We're looking at how people's individual genes respond to different therapies. We're using it, decoding DNA, to diagnose different types of cancers. You can far more accurately diagnose cancers. And then you'll be able to do far more accurate therapies that you'll know different people with different genomes will respond to different types of drugs in different ways. And you'll be able to treat people far, far better. So actually already it's being used to help a whole load of victims of cancer, cancer sufferers, and helping develop a whole range of new drugs. But I think probably in 30 years' time or something, we'll look back at the medicine we had around the year 2000, almost as basic as we look back at sort of Middle Ages medicine. You're going to get medicine that's really tailored to individuals' bodies and DNAs. At the moment, we have sort of generic medicines, as it were, and we're on the cusp of this revolution. And in South Cambridgeshire, where everyone came to where, where DNA was first decoded, Watson and Crick, most of the life sciences companies here are really focusing on this new exciting genomics, but also artificial intelligence, as I said, which is being used to design new drugs. Like, so for example, I visited a company last week which is developing new drugs and proteins, and it's actually using artificial intelligence to look at the shape of the protein, which is incredibly important for how it is applied and how it works. And without artificial intelligence, it's a really complicated, slow process. We can now do this quite sort of quickly and again, develop new drugs more rapidly as a result of it. Right, but Anthony, one thing I've never been quite clear of, if we are having this podcast in Germany or in France, I imagine they'd be talking about their fantastic cutting edge Pasteur Institute or what have you. I mean, in what way is Britain leading the pack here? Or is that just something that we tell ourselves? Is it a bit of boosterism? I mean, clearly there is life sciences everywhere, but I, I can tell you that we're an absolute magnet for talent from around the world. So for example, I've got a company called BitBio, which has just raised in the last couple of weeks, $100 million from America to be able to grow different bits of human organs, brain, liver, muscles from individual skin biopsies I can talk about the science of that if you want. The head of it is an Austrian guy, most of the staff from across the EU. And I was asking why they're coming here. 
And they said, well, there's just nowhere else, certainly in Europe, that you could do this sort of level of research. We've got the uh, Laboratory of Molecular Biology run by a German guy. This is funded by the Medical Research Council, the British government. It's produced 12 Nobel Prize winners, two of them currently working in this building. And I don't think France or Germany could boast that. But if you want one little factoid, I mentioned the Wellcome Sanger Institute. They actually do more genome sequencing of COVID in that one place in South Cambridgeshire than the rest of the world put together. Other countries around the world give their COVID samples to us to decode because they don't have those sorts of facilities. Zoe, cancer research has got pretty big budgets. You guys spent £390 million last year in research. You can spend globally. What kind of research is Britain good at? Where do you think that Britain stands out? So what makes us unique? You know, there's lots of areas of great potential in the UK. So we've got a great clinical research environment, which is important that we build on. We've got the NHS and it needs to sort of expand its research capacity. There's an area of great potential around early detection and diagnosis research and development in the UK. So the UK published a life sciences vision last summer and there was quite a big focus on early detection and diagnosis within that, which is really, really good to see. And there's a huge amount of growth potential in the UK. So there's existing capabilities around genomics and data capabilities and cancer can lead the way here, but it'll be vitally important for other disease areas as well. So if we can diagnose cancer earlier, then it will lead to improved outcomes for patients as well. Samin, Zoe mentioned the life science vision recently published by the government. Does your industry need governmental help? Isn't the kind of the idea that you would just drive innovation by yourselves? I think it's a really good question, but we clearly need an environment to operate successfully in. And I think having a vision which actually allows that environment to flourish and thrive is important for an industry like ours. And when we talk about the life sciences vision, you know, you mentioned earlier around, is it just pharmaceuticals? Is it just biotech? Well, actually, it's much broader than that. It's about connecting much more and collaborating much more with organisations like the charities, but also with the NHS, which I think is a unique offering that we have here. Right, because Anthony Brown spoke about companies coming here because of a network of companies that they could find, the, the mix, I guess, of talents. So what are you looking for? Would you need a government that would simply promise not to overregulate you? Is that the idea? Because there can be still some quite strict regulations in life sciences in other countries. Well, I mean, I think there's a, a number of areas where the government can help us as an industry. And I think, you know, we've already talked a little bit about the investment in R&D. And, you know, we've got the goal to invest 2.4% of uh, GDP by 2027, I believe the year is. So um, that's a government goal for what for companies to invest? Money equivalent to the share of 2.4% or what? It's the government's investment in R&D. So I think, for example, you for know... taxpayers' money, you mean? Yeah, Right, but why should the government be putting taxpayers' money into this? Shouldn't it be up to... I mean, Cancer Research is raising a third of a billion. Novartis has got huge amounts of money. I mean, do we really need to get your average taxpayer to contribute this too? Well, it's an investment. I think the life sciences ecosystem is a huge economic wealth generator for the country. Not only is it also contributing to the health of the nation, but it's one of the biggest economic drivers of the country. So I think putting the money in allows you to then also um, invest in the ecosystem and invest in the in the sort of companies that Andrew's just mentioned, but also in the outputs of those which we benefit from as a population and also globally. And we've seen that with the Oxford vaccine. I can give another answer to that question, actually, which is that there's still so much about life sciences that we just don't know. I mean, it's, the human body is unbelievably complex and there's a lot of really, really basic research that is really probably beyond the ability of an individual company to do it, or certainly in terms of a company that wants to end up producing products. So, for example, at the Laboratory of Molecular Biology in my constituency, which is funded by the government, they discovered monoclonal antibodies, and they put all that information out there for free, basically, which is now an example of a really, really fundamental research 
research, which is now available for all researchers I mean, across the planet, but particularly in the UK, to take forward with different therapists. So for example, Alzheimer's, there's obviously there's huge potential for drugs in Alzheimer's, but there's a lot of very, very basic research about exactly what is Alzheimer's, what happens to the neurons. There's protons that go around the uh, neurons that cause Alzheimer's. What's the chemical structure of that? This is really, really basic research. It may or may not lead to a drug. We may or may not lead to a therapy. We don't know. But it certainly makes sense for governments to fund that really, really basic research, which is very, very far away from any sort of commercial application in terms of it's not about developing a drug or a therapy or whatever. It's just understanding how does the human body work. Zoe, you mentioned the NHS and Britain is unusual in having so much data under one system. That data, as Anthony was saying, can really help us understand what's going on. But it's been problematic, hasn't it, persuading the NHS to open up that data and share it with researchers who could try to to see what information is there to come up with some innovative research. Yeah, so as you mentioned, one of the key enablers of the life sciences sector will be responsible access to data. So we know we need better collection, linkage and use of data, which will be vital to improving healthcare and to support research. And like you said, the UK is in this annual position by having this healthcare system that can generate and collect a wealth of information. And it could really be a world leader in the field. But at the moment, that potential is a bit untapped. You know, there's lots of problems with quality of data collected and infrastructure for managing and linking data, uneven data quality and complex processes governing how data is accessed. And it's imperative that this sort of data collection and linkage is done in a robust and transparent way. And there needs to be a focus on respecting patient privacy and building and maintaining public trust. So all those using patient data have a responsibility to demonstrate they're doing so in a trustworthy way. And, you know, it's really important that this data is accessible by researchers. But again, you need that public trust and you need responsible managing of that data. Samin, how has the race for a COVID vaccine changed what we think is possible in research? I mean, I remember a couple of years ago, people were saying it will take 10 years to find a vaccine for COVID. Look at HIV, we were saying we've been looking for that for 20 years, we've got nowhere. And yet all of a sudden we saw how things can be speeded Mm up. Now, we saw also the evolution of mRNA as something that was a sort of fringe idea to being absolutely core now to our COVID response. And the mRNA, the messenger carrying technology could be good for other things. So do you think we're now looking at a faster rate of innovation potentially as a result of the methods that we've seen deployed in the last 18 months? I would say so. And I think the key learn that we've had out of this pandemic is when you put people together and you collaborate across industry, across government, across the healthcare and with charities, and you have everybody aligned behind a common goal, then, you know, you can get things done very quickly. I mean, you know, the regulatory environment that we're in also adapted and evolved in order to allow the COVID vaccine to be produced the way it was. And Britain was a little bit faster, wasn't it, with some other regulators? Absolutely. And, you know, the regulators are doing some great things in the UK, actually, in terms of the different pathways that they're developing for the ability to develop and access medicines and that's something they're we're actually kind of working with the regulators very closely on to understand actually what routes can we use to get medicines to patients much more quickly so this could speed up then the development of other drugs potentially Potentially, and I think this is something that from a, we're a global organisation, right? And we, we spend what nine billion a year on R and D, and I think in the UK there's an opportunity really to show that actually we we've got a way, a pathway to get medicines to patients much more quickly and innovations to patients much more quickly. I think there's a lot that we're doing really, really well in the UK, but there are areas that we also need to think about how we can better improve. So, for example, we know that even if we have this great regulatory environment and we invest in R and D, how are we really enabling the NHS, our population health? 
health level to uptake these new innovations so that patients and people actually benefit. So that is an area that we probably also need to look at as well. I imagine when a company like Novartis does work out where to commission research, you will look at things like bureaucracy, of course. You look at a testing regime and working out the quality of the relationship between the, the authorities. And the, I ask this because I remember Matt Hancock telling me that what was being created during the COVID regulation was a template that could put rocket boosters under the life science industry in general. Now, he was very optimistic about that, of course. I never quite worked out how, to what extent that was different. I mean, does a company, you're based in Switzerland, you're a global company, does Britain stand out as being an unusually good place to do research or is there a bit more room for improvement? I mean, there's definitely room for improvement. And I think what we have here in the UK is world-leading institutions, academics, and the ability to do the research. I think where we do need to look at is our ability to deliver that research. And I'm talking about clinical research, not necessarily the basic science stuff, but actually the things where you are actually testing an innovation across an organisation like the NHS. How can we actually enable that research to happen, given you know where the NHS is right now with its workforce and ability to, to deliver that? The NHS is also looking at how they can digitally enable the infrastructure, but actually, is there a way that we can also digitally enable that clinical research? Is there a more efficient way that we can deliver that? So, yeah, you know, repeating some of those comments, but obviously COVID has shown just how important research is and how rapidly it can be approved and delivered and how efficiently the health service can adopt innovations into standard of care. But I think it's just also just important to, you know, mentioned that you know the pandemic was a time when everyone was coming together collectively to focus on this like one challenge and the speed was also enabled slightly by quite a lot of disruption to non-covid clinical research as well and that was actually a really good point I was going to add. So we've, yeah. we've seen a real downfall in our non-COVID. I mean, a lot of, we didn't have any COVID work going on, but actually all of the commercial non-COVID research, you know, that basically stopped pretty much. But why? If you weren't doing COVID work, how could COVID displace your other work? Well, because when you're using the NHS as your place to deliver research and everybody is then being redeployed to either deal with COVID or to work on COVID trials, then that leaves very little resource for what we need for the non-COVID work. And we saw that with the oncology trials, you know, you know, there's a lot of other important diseases that also need to be addressed. And we did see that and we were slower to recover versus our European counterparts. We are seeing actually green shoots of recovery now. We can say that our oncology trials are actually picking back up to pre-COVID levels, but it's taken us much, much longer than I would say our European counterparts. And, you know, the feedback we get, and I'd love to get your view on that, Zoe, is it's down to how we are able to deliver healthcare and deliver research at the same time. Zoe, that's a very good point. I mean, we had figures just showing how fewer cancer diagnoses there have been during the COVID period. There is a lot of concern, actually, that we could be looking at more late stage cancers presenting. I hadn't quite thought of the impact on oncology trials and cancer research trials in general. Have you noticed they've been put back in Britain, perhaps more so than other countries? Yeah, so just echoing what was said there, you know, the recovery of non-COVID research in the UK does lag behind international competitors, I think. So, you know, Spain and Italy, I think, seem to be doing quite well. And despite some recovery to recruitment of, of cancer clinical trials, recovery has still stalled a bit. And it's really important that these trials can get back up and running. And if they, you know, get get back up and running, that will help create a more attractive research environment in the UK. And I think our understanding is that activity remains at around 60% of pre-pandemic levels due to limited workforce capacity and pressures on research support services. So those are some of the pressures that are, that are happening. And there has been some, some progress with some managed recovery programmes, but we need to build researchers' resilience, you know, through 
we're still kind of going through COVID at the moment as well. And we need to expand research capacity, you know, by pre-assigning support service capacity for research as well. Anthony, let's talk about the NHS for a minute. Your party's having an interesting conversation about it. You tried to open up data. That didn't go very well. A bit of a mess was made of that. We've also seen that the NHS did struggle with non-COVID care. It wasn't just cancer research. It was knee replacements, hip replacements. They went down far more in Britain than they did. In fact, these replacements went up in Denmark for some reason, but they were halved in Britain. So do we need to talk about how the NHS is structured and how it can continue to look at non-COVID care? Because COVID is going to be here for some time. We might be heading for another Omicron variant. We surely can't afford to let non-COVID care slip behind yet again. Well, you're absolutely right that we need to clearly need to learn the lessons from the pandemic and what went right and what went wrong. I, it isn't all bad news. I just had a visit at my local uh, Addenbrooke's hospital to the radiotherapy department and they carried on working fully throughout the entire pandemic for treating cancer patients. The trouble with the pandemic is that we had no idea how the virus spread, how people reacted to it. We took a sort of precautionary approach. Clearly it had a massive impact. The government's now spending huge amounts of money on catch-up on the NHS. We've got these incredible long waiting lists now that are clearly really unacceptable, both from a sort of patient point of view, but also just from a healthcare point of view that people's diseases get worse. So it's absolutely right that we need that focus on catch-up. But also, you know, if there is another pandemic, then making sure that we don't overreact in some ways or making sure that our response is proportionate, making sure we can carry on sort of the more routine care as much as possible throughout the pandemic. I mean, you said the coronavirus is going to stay with us. I mean, it is, but it's now clearly far more manageable. The number of hospitalisation cases is a fraction of what it was at the, the peak of the pandemic. The number of deaths is a fraction of what it was. And we now know how to treat it properly. We, know, we now know the precautions we need to take. So it's far more, we're not out of the woods yet, but it's far more routine for the NHS now than it was a year ago or 18 months ago. Anthony, you say that your constituency is the life sciences capital of Europe. Have you noticed research, non-COVID research, coming in more quickly during this period because of the world's focus on the potential of life sciences and perhaps people changing their minds about what we can realistically expect? You were talking earlier on about perhaps in a generation's time us looking back on the turn of the century as being the dark ages. So do you get a sense now, or do you see people putting in money because they think, for example, mRNA could be, we could have a cancer vaccine in 15 years, so it's time to spend more investigating that? Well, and, and there are lots of people in South Cambridge investigating uh, cancer vaccines. Yes, I think actually the pandemic has really focused world attention on the potential of life sciences. As you mentioned earlier, previously, it would be 10 years to develop a vaccine. Actually, now we can do it in, lots of people can do it in one year. It really has progressed. And the attention is at a political level. So we had the G7, obviously the UK was president of that. What what got slightly less coverage is they had a, a health G7, where they got the world's health minister together to discuss not just the pandemic, but actually also the development of the life sciences. And that wouldn't have happened if we hadn't had the pandemic. But investors also are realising, actually, there's huge potential here. So healthcare is what economists call a superior good. As you, you get wealthier, society has get wealthier, they spend more of their money on it, not just more in proportion to economic growth, but a greater share of their money on it. And that's clearly going to carry on as we as we get wealthier as a society, we're going to want to spend more and more on making sure our health is good. So from an investment perspective, there's huge opportunities here. And the fact there are new technologies that we we're discussing earlier, all the genomics and so on, means that actually there's lots of appetite for investment, lots of things to invest money on. And I've got a lot of companies in my constituency that have been fundraising very successfully over the last 18 months or two years, nothing to do with COVID whatsoever, but just people, investors around the world thinking actually life sciences is the new hot industry. 
Zoe, can I ask you about research levels? I saw a report from IPPR recently saying that the loss of income for medical charities during COVID could lead to an £8 billion black hole. Now, that sees pretty big implications for what we're all talking about. Yes, of course. So, you know, it was a difficult time for, for the charity sector during the pandemic. You know, lots of sectors were impacted. But for fundraising organisations, you know, shops were shut and events were cancelled. So it meant it was harder to, to raise income. And then also the knock-on effect is less funding to spend on, on research. That's a challenging time and we're still going through it. Cancer Research UK unfortunately had to make some cuts last year. But we've now moved to a kind of new research model where we're just spending a bit less on research than we have done previously. And, you know, it makes it even more vital that the other parts of the system, life sciences ecosystem, are supporting research. So government funding for life sciences research is is ultimately, you know, even more important now because of this. And it was really positive in some ways to see some uplifts to health research and development funding at the spending review. But yeah, we need to see where that funding will will go and what it will be spent on. So it's a hard time and it's been a, a tough time, but I think we're still optimistic about the future. We're still funding, alongside other charities, still funding lots of game changing research. But, you know, it's just going to take a little bit of time to get back up to that sort of spending that we were spending before. Samin, we're talking about investment coming into Britain all well and good, but we also need people, don't we, coming into Britain. Now, since uh, Brexit has been rather more difficult to get in, certainly EU nationals here, we're sitting here in London where there's lots of complaints about a lack of workers. How is it for your industry? Is there a lack? Obviously, you're looking at very high skilled workers. We're told by the government that they're pretty much given a VIP pass and allowed to come through. How is it working out in practice? Are you getting the people that you need? I think, I mean, as you rightly point out, we have high skilled workers. And I mean, you know, I can't say it's something that's impacted us directly. But clearly, if it's impacting the healthcare system and the NHS, which I think does rely on a lot of these migrant workers, then that impacts us because it makes the system much more difficult to engage with and also work with because they're under-resourced or the people aren't there. So, you know, that's something from, a, I guess, a knock-on effect. But directly, it's not something that we've really seen affect us. Okay. And Anthony, I have tried not to mention Global Britain over this because it can be such a cliche, but does it have any sort of real meaning here? I mean, because this is an example. If you, you say we lead the world, which is great. We led the world in this before Brexit, one assumes. Does Brexit have any impact on this whatsoever? And is the government, in your view, globalising as well as it could in terms of just helping companies attract the talent and doing what it can to create an atmosphere where they feel confident about investing? Well, I think Brexit has two impacts on life sciences in a, in a positive sense. And there's clearly problems with clinical trials and so on that will get resolved. But the two, two impacts are one is the focus of the government and actually this whole global agenda that suddenly it's, it's going to think, right, we need we need to be world leading a science superpower. What do we need to do that? And that's, there's far more focus on that now than there was pre-Brexit has become more of our defining mission as a as a nation. But it also does give us some regulatory flexibility. And you, you touched on this earlier about the uh, Medical Healthcare Regulators Agency, for example, the way they streamline their approvals for the coronavirus vaccine and whether they could use that as a template for other approvals. And that, I think, is a very, very sort of positive thing. You, you talked about talent there. It's a question I ask all my life science companies, and, and I basically get the similar answer that you had from uh, Novartis there, that actually it's not actually at their level, not really an issue. The government is changing the immigration system to make sure we remain a global global magnet for talent. But actually, it's the lower skilled workers, which do affect part of the healthcare system, obviously, where there is a shortage. And actually, I, the, the complaints I get in my constituency about shortage of labour are from uh, farmers. 
From farmers, okay. Because you're in Cambridge. <laughs> that's a whole new that's a whole new podcast. And Samin, final question to you. As a chief scientific officer, where do you think the next big scientific breakthroughs are likely to happen? Because you will know what's you know, what's pretty far away and what might be on the cusp of happening. I mean, do you think we can look, for example, for mRNA vaccines to be applied to a whole new bunch of ailments we didn't think possible? where do you think we're closest in seeing a breakthrough that your average punter would think, wow, that's impressive? You must see some such exciting research. It's a great question and probably one that's quite difficult to answer. There are so many things going on in this space at the moment. You know, there's still more to come in the gene and cell therapy space right now, you know, with advancements in gene editing technology, for example. And also, as you've heard today, there's lots in the early diagnostic space. You know, there's just so much going on in the whole precision medicine space as well. For me, the one area that I think is really exciting is this ability to link up our genomic data with real-world health data. Um, I think that has just so many future potential applications when it comes to trying to help people as well as, you know, deal with population health issues. Um, So I'm really, I'd be really excited to see how we can really progress and accelerate that particular area. Right. And Anthony, you're a bit of an evangelist for scientific progress. You wrote a Spectator cover story recently on the the leaps and bounds we're making in fake meat. Now, given you started off saying that we will in 30 years time look back on the turn of the millennium as being the Middle Ages, what kind of pills and treatments do you think we can look forward to in the next generation or so? Well, t- two things. So, so one, and, and this is already happening, is the, doing it in Addenbrooke's Hospital in, in my constituency, but also a couple of other places, is when you have a certain type of cancer like breast cancer, they now take a sample of your DNA from a skin biopsy and also from the cancer itself to diagnose precisely, there's lots of different variants of cancer, exactly which one it is. And then what they'll be able to do in future is tell from your DNA which drug your body needs to deal with that exact type of cancer. At the moment, we've got broad areas of diagnosis of cancer, and we basically give the same drugs to everyone. They might work, they might not work. If they don't work, we then try something else. Whereas this is really, really hyper-targeted. But the one that you asked me what excites me, and I'll give you an example, that the, the company that I touched on earlier, Bitbio, the one that just raised over $100 million, they can take skin biopsies and turn them into pluripotential stem cells, those that are in the fetus, that they can then train to become neurons or muscle cells or liver cells. And these cells, they grow them together. They showed me like a whole group of human neurons growing together and they spark off like a little part of the human brain. No one knows quite what they're thinking about. You put muscle cells together, they all wire themselves together in a proper way. You put little sparks at the end and they contract like uh, muscles. But the first clinical trial will be on liver cells. And the, the thing is here that actually you can develop an individual's liver cells. You inject them into the liver if they're suffering liver disease like cirrhosis and it will help repair their liver, in, that's the hope, in a way that you just can't do with a drug. Or in Parkinson's disease, you can imagine that you basically inject fresh new neurons into their brain to help rebuild the brain in a way that you just won't be able to do with a drug. So these are extraordinary developments that were unimaginable even a decade ago, and we are really on the brink of making that happen now. So I could, I mean, I could add a slightly controversial view as well, because it's fantastic that we see all this innovation and focus on on earlier diagnosis and all these treatments that can be, you know, what you're talking about, Andrew, is personalised. But at the moment, even with our current standard of care and the current treatments that are available, they're not always being taken up. They're not always being funded in the UK. We do have great things that have been funded. Obviously, the gene therapies, you know, we've had two from Novartis funded in the last couple of years. But, you know, we've also got to think about actually, as a healthcare system, how are we not 
not just creating the innovation, but how are we actually able to adopt and, and make that sure that they reach very, the right people? I think the NHS budget is going to go up and up. So how do we make that happen, right? If you've got all these great innovations and if your earlier diagnosis means longer, you know, potential earlier treatments, longer time on treatment, depending on the treatment. So, you know, that's something else that we have to be mindful of. We also need to kind of look at our current standard of care and how we can optimise that before we start thinking about all of the kind of newer innovations that are coming through. Wow. And Simi, when you're training as a doctor, do you think there is more sense of optimism now about what medicine can achieve than there was back then. I'll tell you why I asked, because right now I have a spectator, we work with the Social Mobility Foundation to get really bright young kids. And 20 years ago, we had a lot of them wanted to be journalists. Now they all want to do life sciences. And it's interesting, it is easily the number one request that they've got. If you're young and talented in this country, life sciences is the thing that they want to go. There seems to be this incredible feeling amongst the young generation of what will be achievable in the next 10 to 20 years, there seems to be more optimism amongst them than I remember being when I was at university, sort of course, 25 years ago. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I think it's a really exciting time to be in the life sciences sector. There is so much innovation, not just as a doctor, but as a scientist working in universities, collaborating much more as we do now, not just within the UK, but across borders globally, but equally within sectors. I would say that there is much more excitement. I mean, my peers are now consultants. They're all in various specialties across across the country. And you can see that not only are they just doing their day-to-day doctor job, they're also very much involved in, in research and trying to progress science further for the benefits of patients. So I do think it's an exciting time. But clearly, you know, and again, I don't want to kind of go back to a slightly negative view, but, you know, there are lots of challenges in, in their day-to-day work as well, working in the NHS. You know, they've, it's been a tough year for everybody or tough 18 months I would say so but no other than that it's it's a super exciting time to be be in this space well thanks very much to all of you for joining me on this podcast Samin Saeed Anthony Brown and Zoe Martin